Well, please have your Bible open at Mark chapter 11. Um, We're going to look at this passage and learn from it some Christian realities. What are we to make of those verses in the Bible which seem to suggest that we can ask God for absolutely anything and as long as we have enough faith, he'll do it. What are we to make of those Bible teachers who say that that's exactly what the Bible does teach? And the only thing that prevents you from experiencing it is whether or not you've got enough faith. And you'll find verses such as these quoted from Matthew 7. Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be opened. Matthew 18. If two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. In John's Gospel, quite a few verses. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name I will do it if you abide in me and my words abide in you you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you until now you've asked nothing in my name ask you will receive that your joy may be full well that sounds wonderful doesn't it however There are other verses in the Bible that put a different slant on things. How about Mark chapter 10, verse 35? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now that seems to be what those verses have just said we should do. He said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said, grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. They were asking for the wrong thing. James chapter 4. You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You might expect he's going to say, so ask and whatever you ask for you'll get, but he doesn't, does he? You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss. You're asking wrongly, you're asking for wrong things. Because you want to spend those things on your pleasures. 1 John 5. This is the confidence we have in him. That if we ask anything. According to his will. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us. Whatever we ask. We know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. How do we reconcile these things? Well, I trust we'll see. 
Now, verse 20 of Mark 11 finds Jesus and his disciples walking past a fig tree which they'd walked past the previous day. We read in verses 12 and 13 that Jesus had been hungry. He saw the fig tree in the distance and went to see if there were any figs on it. But he discovered that whilst it was full of leaves, there wasn't a single fig. Then we're told why. It wasn't the season for figs. Question. Did Jesus not know that? He is the creator. Does he not understand how his creation works? Did he not create the seasons? Well, of course he did. Of course he knows. It wasn't the tree's fault that it wasn't bearing figs, was it? If it's not the season for figs. What's going on here? There's a few things we need to think about. Number one, it was made perfectly clear that it was a healthy tree in full leaf. Well, that's important when you consider how the tree was found the following morning. This is a healthy tree in full leaf. This isn't a tree that looks like it's about to be dead by tomorrow morning. Number two, Jesus lived without sin. And so this wasn't a sudden fit of pique or anger or, or temper from Jesus, the way he addresses the tree. Number three, the journey that they took the next morning took them back past that same tree. Is that not also significant? Yes, of course it is. Number four. The disciples immediately noticed the condition that the tree was in the following morning. Because they were meant to. Because what Jesus did here was a deliberate act to teach his disciples an important lesson. Jesus doesn't do things haphazardly. He doesn't do things randomly. He doesn't do things by chance. He doesn't do things because he's just lost his temper on the spur of the moment. Because he's a man without sin. They saw a perfectly healthy tree. They heard Jesus declare that it would not bear any more figs. And within 24 hours, less than 24 hours, it looked like it had been dead for months. This passage, I want to consider three important lessons with you from it number one lesson number one the nature of miracles the nature of miracles now earlier in this series I mentioned that in the world of physics you find it in other scientific areas as well but in the world of physics there are many observable realities that can be tested and demonstrated and they continue to occur with such constancy, with such consistency, that it is said there are laws of physics which are governing the physical world. And we say there are laws in place because that's how it seems to be. Things just always happen the same. Drop a ball from a certain height and unless some other force is introduced and acts upon that ball, you can repeat that experiment over and over again and the ball will always take exactly the same time to drop and hit the floor. Always. Turn on the light switch. 
And unless something in the circuit has developed a fault, the light will always come on. There are things which sometimes can interrupt or interfere. And so the outcomes aren't always 100% reliable because other things can happen. But the basic laws, as we call them, which govern the world, continue unchanged. At least, there's been no noticeable change in our lifetime. And there won't be. All the technology and engineering in the world, from the most simple to the most complex, which we take for granted, you just press buttons and it happens. Those things just happen because there are these so-called laws which are governing everything and they're constant and they're consistent. Now, of course, the reality is that there are actually no such laws. The reality is that God has created his creation to work ordinarily in a certain way. And under normal conditions and under his sovereign control, things work a certain way in his creation. And so consistent and reliable and so faithful is God, you can set your watch by them, so to speak. However, there's nothing in the nature or character of God and there's nothing in the Bible about God that prevents God from making things work differently to the way they normally work if he so chooses. And that's when we call something a miracle. Because it doesn't normally happen like that. And yet here's the thing. The reality is that very often those things that we might call miracles are no more remarkable than things that happen routinely. Let's think of one miracle that Jesus did when he turned water into wine. Those who have the scientific qualifications might be able to sit down and think to themselves, hmm, what are all the chemical processes that might have been necessary for something like that to happen that don't normally happen? Set that on one page and then place alongside it the arrival of a baby into this world from the point of its conception through its gestation in the womb and then to birth and look at the billions the billions of chemical and biological processes that are necessary for that to happen the production of a brand new human being who never before existed except in the infinite knowledge of God. Water into wine is unusual and not normal. But personally, I would say it's not more wonderful than the birth of a child. Maybe you'd think differently. For me, the birth of a baby seems to be a far greater miracle. But because it happens thousands of times every day, 
it doesn't technically fit our definition of miracle. Because that's, that's how it always happens. But God can, if he wishes, because he's God and because it's his creation, he can, to do, he can choose to do things that fall outside of that normal experience that we have. So what happened to that tree fell outside of normal experience. Because God can make his creation work in a different way if he so chooses, because he's God. All trees die eventually. Some don't last too long. Some last for centuries, don't they? Olive trees apparently can live for thousands of years, but they all die eventually. But Jesus was able to change the normal life cycle of this tree in a way that's not usual and isn't typical. And so the disciples were astonished. And presumably there were plenty more people who were familiar with that tree who also knew that trees don't die like that overnight. And the nature of miracles, as we see them in the Lord Jesus Christ, shows us that here is the evidence of Godhood. Here is the evidence that Jesus is God. John, after all, tells us in the introduction to his gospel that there was nothing in this world that was made without Christ. And how is it that the Lord Jesus Christ can change the normal ways that things happen in this world if he is not God? We see these, what we call, miracles. That's not normally the way God does things. But God, surely it can only be God. God has done it differently on this occasion for a reason known to him. And so we see in the nature of these miracles that Jesus is able to do full evidence that he is God. That's why you need to take him seriously. The second thing we learn is the nature of faith. The nature of faith. Because if Jesus is God, he's the one you need to put your faith in. Now, faith in God covers more than one thing. But having real active faith in God or not having real and active faith in God is what splits this whole world into two distinct camps. There are those who have real active faith in God through Christ and there are those who don't. And everyone in this room is in one of those two camps this morning. I wonder which one you're in. Now there's a very specific type of faith which is not actually the faith that Jesus is talking about in this passage. But there's a very specific type of faith which every man or woman or boy or girl needs to ask themselves if they have. There's a type of faith that you need to ask yourself this morning, do I have this faith? Because without this first type of faith that I want to mention, you cannot even begin to consider the faith that Jesus is talking about in verse 22. Because the faith of verse 22 is addressed specifically and exclusively to those who are already followers and disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he's talking to. 
at verse 22. Who are the they in verse 20? It's Jesus and his disciples. He's talking to them about faith. So the thing you have to ask yourself is, are you a disciple, a follower of Christ? What makes anyone to be a disciple or a follower of Christ? Well, there are quite a few answers you could give to that question, which would all be correct. But ultimately, it comes down to whether or not you believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the Bible. Who he is. How and why he came into this world. And who he was before he came. That's important too. How and why he lived. How and why he died and rose from the dead. How and why he yet lives in the power of an endless life. How and why he will bring this world to its close when he returns and judge all men and women who have ever lived. What do you believe about him on all those points and others like them? And not just your understanding. This isn't just an, an intellectual exercise. Have you placed your full trust in him? For your salvation from sin? Are you looking away from yourself and only to Christ in repentance and faith? A faith that believes everything that the Bible reveals Christ to be. A faith that trusts in Him as the one who truly is the only Saviour for sinners. Is that you? Do you have that kind of faith for the forgiveness of sins? for the foundation of a new and richer life, to be able to face death with no fear, for absolute assurance of an an eternal inheritance so glorious you can't even begin to imagine it. And even the scriptures struggle to find the words to, to define it. Is that you? In Christ Jesus, do you have saving faith in Christ that you are his disciple and by the way this saving faith let me tell you what it isn't it's not you trying to build up within yourself a certain degree of faith because only when you've come to a certain level of faith Only then will you have enough faith to become a Christian. That's not how saving faith works or operates. Here's the question. Are you convinced that Christ is sufficient? That's the issue. It's not whether you have sufficient faith. Is do you have faith that Christ is sufficient? That's the issue. You see, that's all you need. To believe that Christ is sufficient. And if you are, then just run to him. Just go to him. Turn from your sin and simply cling to him. Because you'll you'll discover something wonderful. 
when you take hold of him, you'll discover that he's already taken hold of you. And he's holding you secure in his arms. And his arms will keep you. It doesn't matter whether you think you've got the strength to hold on to him because he's never going to let go of you. He'll keep you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. Are you convinced that that that's who Christ is? Then just go to him. That's all you need to do. That's saving faith. And for those who are saved, there's another aspect of faith, which is this ongoing trust and dependence upon God in Christ. And this is a type of faith in which we can grow It includes laying hold of God in prayer. Bringing to him praise and thanksgiving and confession of sin. Bringing to him people and their needs and circumstances and your own. And praying for certain outcomes. But what exactly is the place of faith here? How should we expect God to answer What of those verses that say, ask for anything? What of those verses that say, ah, no, no, because you've asked amiss? What of 1 John 5 where he says, you've got to ask according to God's will? How do we balance this out? The reference to mountains being moved or removed in verse 23 was actually a Jewish proverb. It was a well-known phrase. It would have been familiar to his first century listeners. You'll find Jesus using it twice in Matthew's gospel in chapters 17 and 21. You find the apostle Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 2. It's a proverb. We're not literally expected to believe that we can pray that God can remove mountains. God doesn't want us to go into Snowdonia and try and move Snowden somewhere else. It's not what he's talking about. He's quoting a proverb. Then he wants us to explain what the reality is and understand what the reality is. What are we to make of this and other things said by Jesus in verse 23? Well, we saw earlier there are verses in the Bible which, when quoted in isolation, make it sound as if we can ask God for anything. And if you've got enough faith, you'll get it. But there are clearly other verses that teach us that actually, no, it's not a free-for-all. It isn't. We saw in those verses it's possible to ask for wrong things. And so you won't get those. We saw that it's wrong to ask amiss. And if you put yourself in that position, well, be prepared to be disappointed in prayer. And if you're in that position, it's not because you lack faith, which is what many teach. You just need more faith. It's not that. 
You see, far more important than the size of your faith is the size of the one in whom you're putting your faith. Have faith in God, says Jesus. It's about the one in whom you put your faith. Put your faith in God. And secondly, belief in what God will do is also crucial. The language that Jesus uses is very specific and it's worth taking note of in verse 23. Don't doubt in your heart. Believe, believe that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Those things that will be done, that will be done. Words and language are very important in the Bible. Belief in what God will do is very different from have enough faith that God can do. They're two very different positions. There are many who teach have enough faith that God can do. The Bible teaches have faith in, God, in what God will do. The question is, what do you believe that God will do? Not, what do you believe God can or might do? That, that makes us ask another question. Well, how can I know what God will do? How can I know what God will do so that I can pray for it? Because that's actually what Jesus is talking about here. And that's those other verses that we saw that say, hang on a minute, this isn't a free-for-all to ask for anything you can think of. How can I know what God will do? John 14, verse 14, Jesus said, Abide in me, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. But you see, asking what you desire has a qualification. And the qualification is this, that the words of Christ are abiding in you. Because what you desire is to be shaped by truth and the will of God that he's made known. Ask according to the truth that Christ has made known. We read from Matthew 18, if two of you agree on earth concerning anything, but you have to ask the question, what is going to be the basis of your agreement? What's going to be the basis of your agreement? A gut feeling? You feel the same as me, therefore we're going to get it? Is that what the Bible teaches? Keep asking around the church. If you question enough people, eventually you'll find one person who agrees with you, even if the other 99% don't. Is that what it means? No, the basis of agreement between believers is the word of God. The basis of agreement between believers is the truth of God's word. The basis of agreement between believers is the promises of God. 
the basis of agreement between believers is what God has said he will do. Not wild schemes that we can think up of in our heads. That's how we pray. That's when God answers. How can we know God's will? Well, you read it in the Bible. What is the word that is to abide in us? It's the word of God in the Bible. You read it in the Bible, which is the word of Christ, which must abide in you, which is to be the source of our agreement together. I can open up my Bible and discover all kinds of things which are God's will. And on that basis, pray for them with confidence. Knowing that God will answer a prayer like this. Because this is God's will. Now I might not know precise outcomes. I might not know precise outcomes regarding specific people or specific circumstances. Because the Bible doesn't tell me those things. But you see this is one of the reasons why a little while ago we looked at the prayers of the Apostle Paul. How did he pray? What kinds of things did he ask for? He didn't just think of the wildest, most ridiculous schemes and things out of his imagination and pray for those things, did he? How did he pray for churches and Christians? What were the themes of his prayers? Do we come away from listening to Paul pray that we can pray for whatever we like as long as we've got enough faith? That I can twist God's arm to do whatever is the desire of my heart as long as I've got enough faith. That's not the impression you come away from when you listen to Paul pray. Now if you missed it or you want to think again, that series was back in April and May. You might find it helpful to revisit them. All the sermons are on the website. But to let help you, let's help point ourselves in the right direction. Let me give you some of the titles from some of those sermons. Some of the chief things that Paul prayed for for Christian believers and Christian churches to be obedient and faithful to be righteous and holy to be strengthened and filled to give thanks because it's all God's doing to pray without ceasing to seek and desire God's glory and praise above everything else and we know that Christ died for sinners And that his elect are to be called in through the preaching of the gospel. So pray for that. We know that the older men are to be teachers and examples to the younger men. And likewise and equally the older women to the younger. So pray for that. We know that there will be much unavoidable opposition and persecution that comes our way. So pray that in Christ we'll find strength and confidence and faith to endure it. We know that wives are to submit to their husbands and that husbands are to sacrificially love their wives. So pray for it. We know that children must obey their parents and that parents must not provoke their children. So pray for it. You see, in all of these things and far more besides, God makes known his will for us, for his church, for this world. These are the things that you're able to pray for. These are the things that you can bring to God in prayer with no doubt in your heart whatsoever because it's based on the word of God. God has said, and I am going to pray. 
And you know that God will. You know that workers are needed in the harvest fields, so pray for that. When we pray for these things, we don't need to have any doubting in our hearts, do we? Because we know this is God's will for us. These are the things that God has said he will do. And don't for one moment imagine that you feel, oh, but we're, re we're restricting ourselves in prayer when we think like this. And we'll soon run out of things to pray for. You will not. You've got a lifetime of things to pray for when you open up God's word and see what God's will is and find out what he wants us to pray about. You've got a lifetime of praying to do because of the nature of faith when we pray. And finally, we see the nature of the praying heart. The nature of the praying heart. You do know, don't you, that the Bible teaches very clearly that there are certain people who when they call to him, God will not hear. He will not listen to them. Psalm 66 verse 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, if I know I'm a sinner and I'm willingly, knowingly continuing in my sin, the Lord will not hear me. It's a theme repeated many times in the Old Testament. And actually that theme lies at the heart of verses 25 and 26 that Jesus mentions about forgiveness. There are those who when they call out to God won't hear. You read through Jeremiah. God says to Jeremiah, stop praying for my people. You think, what? God would never say such a thing. Oh, yes, he would. Because Israel are so rebellious, so stuck in their sin, so determined not to repent, that God has wiped his hands of them. Jeremiah, you can pray for this people all day long. I am not listening We Christians who only ever want to talk about love and grace and nice fluffy things don't like to read that side to God but it's there in the scriptures for all to see. Those who are true disciples of Jesus Christ have hearts of forgiveness in the same way that God has forgiven you. That's the point that Jesus wants to make here. If you have an unforgiving heart that may well be a sign that you yourself actually are not truly forgiven. And God will treat you as an unbeliever and his ear will be turned away from you unless and until you get on your knees and confess your sin in repentance and faith. And that takes us back to saving faith again. It's a different type of faith. Unless and until you confess before Christ and get reconciled to God through Christ, he's not listening to you. To harbour unforgiveness is to regard iniquity in your heart. And the Lord will not hear. Now this is a serious admonition to consider. 
And it's one which I fear many Christians just skip over and brush off as if there are things that Jesus said that we really don't need to take too much notice of. Forgiveness in the praying heart. Absolutely vital, says Jesus. Because it's the sign that you know you've been forgiven. Forgiving is not forgetting Forgiveness is to be all too aware of some past offence or injury, but regardless of that memory, you feel and act and behave towards that person just as you would anybody else, because you've forgiven them. There's no resentment, there's no spitefulness, there are no grudges being held. There is no obvious sign to anyone that you're treating that person differently because you're not. Because despite those memories, you've forgiven them. You're not, in your own mind, holding it back in reserve as ammunition that you can bring as a charge against them in the future. And it's sitting there in the back of your mind, waiting, waiting, waiting. If I need it, I'll use it. That's not forgiveness, is it? It's done with. Your heart and your mind are settled on the issue. You've forgiven them. It'll never be brought up again. It will never again influence your relationship with them. It will never influence how you speak of them with others. Of course, you do remember, don't you? No, that's not forgiveness, is it? If what I've just described as forgiveness bears no resemblance whatsoever to how you have dealt with past hurts, then you have a serious heart problem that you need to resolve. And I can say that with confidence based upon the word of Christ. And how do you deal with it? Because we know it's not easy. And it certainly doesn't come naturally to the sinful man and woman, does it? Trump was just refused access to someone's funeral. Because there's no love lost and there's no forgiveness. You do it by looking at yourself in front of the cross... You do it by remembering just how dire and numerous are your offences before the living God. And you look at Christ and you see again and remember the depth of his compassion and forgiveness towards you. And you stay there and you let it really sink in. Who do I think I am to judge another? Who do I think I am to judge them not worthy of my forgiveness when Christ has forgiven me? That's how you deal with it. How can I possibly say that I cannot forgive when I remember what Christ has forgiven in me? Who do I think I am to bear grudges when Christ has set me free? 
That's how you deal with it. But if you can't do that, if you won't do that, if you hold anything, Christ's word, against anyone, Christ's word, don't be at all surprised if God turns away and refuses to hear when you pray. What a promise Christ gives us here in these words of how you can pray as a Christian man or woman absolutely assured that God will hear and answer prayer. What a glorious promise that is. What a position that is that God has granted his children. Don't doubt in your heart. There's no need to doubt. Believe those things which God's word makes clear and you will receive. Which is why we so boldly proclaim the gospel. Because we know the promise, don't we? If you will confess your sins and trust in Christ, you will be saved. Pray with faith in God that you will receive them and you will have them. You have the word of Christ on that. Our Heavenly Father, what an amazing privilege it is for us through the page of Scripture to meet face to face with your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. O oh Lord, grant us hearts and minds that we might hear, that we might truly listen, that we might really learn, that we might totally be changed and transformed unto his likeness. These, O oh Lord, are yours alone to do in us. Work, we pray, by your mighty power. Bring upon us, O oh Lord, your grace, your love. Implant faith deep into our hearts. May we be fully assured in the word of God that it might be for us the foundation of our living. And help us, O oh Lord, to live lives which are right in your sight to the glory of and praise and honour of your great name. Do this even in us, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen.